Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bakker. If you have been following along this season, you're going to love today's episode. After hearing from Janet Ranganathan and Ravi Dar about cool foods, the four Ps, and various influences on our decision-making processes, we're going to see how these concepts might work in the real world. Sarah Burnett has more than 18 years of experience developing brand-building strategies and campaigns, from attention-getting customer-facing activations to executive and IPO communications. As Vice President of Food Beliefs, Sustainability and Public Relations at Panera Bread, Sarah was responsible for the company's policies on food issues, ranging from sustainability to food additives. She also provided menu labeling and education to inform customer choice. Prior to that, Sarah worked for more than a decade on the quality assurance team, overseeing special projects including the creation and implementation of the company's clean food initiative, Race Without Antibiotics program, and more. She's currently the principal at Burnett Strategy and Communications. Welcome to the show, Sarah. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You know, prior to getting going today, I was looking over your LinkedIn profile and noticed that there seemed to be a turning point when your role shifted from strictly a health and wellness focus to include sustainability. Can you tell me a little bit more about your background? Sure, certainly. There was definitely a pivot point from 2013 to 2014 in my career. As I started out from my education, I was a scientist by training, a biologist. I did an environmental fellowship. And in all honesty, I didn't expect that I would end up in the food world. That being said, I came from a food family. My father was a restaurant operator his whole life. My mother was a grocery store uh, manager. And so I've always touched food in some way. So maybe it was serendipitous that I ended up at Panera. But like you said, you know, the first 10 years of my career were really sitting in the supply chain and quality side of the business doing much more technical work. But when we wrote our original clean food policy and published that in 2014, I pivoted a little bit. I was overseeing the work from a technical standpoint, but I was also became um, a campaign lead for our you know, three-year Food As It Should Be campaign, as well as a public spokesperson for the brand. And as we moved beyond that work, we recognized that our influence and our impact went well beyond just the ingredients that were in our products, but where they came from, how they were raised and grown. And we really wanted to expand our work to include all of sustainability, not just that wellness aspect. I am sure we're going to talk a little bit more about the clean food policy, but before we get going on that one, Sarah, in the podcast series, we talk a lot about the system. So I would love to talk to you a little bit more about the bigger picture for a moment, food systems as a whole. You've talked quite a bit in your role prior about how the entire food system can impact climate change. So as a starting point, what elements do you believe are critical to a truly sustainable food system going forward? Well, that's a big question, Michael. I think that the probably the shortest, simplest answer I would say is as food professionals, we can all find a way to convince ourselves that we're not part of the problem and we're not part of the solution. And we see it on both ends of the spectrum. When you're at a big food company, you're saying, oh, man, it's hard to move this behemoth of an organization. We have such strong business metrics, obligations to shareholders. How can we do and how can we truly make an impact? 
especially when you have to move a really, really big supply chain. You know, on the small side of things, you might say, my voice isn't that big. But the reality is, it is a very complicated and connected food system, and there is a role for everyone. So whether you're small or big, you're private or public, you know, you're an NGO or a government, we all have a role and we all have an impact. And collectively, we can do a lot more together. Um, I liken this back to maybe a really simplified problem in nutrition. And I say simple, but it's still not solved. And I think about sodium reduction. It's not glamorous or that exciting, but you have food companies who are constantly trying to innovate and trying to make really craveable products that reduce sodium. You're having, you know, the FDA put out sodium guidance to help give them standards and give them guidance on where they should be going. You have consumers that are getting coached by healthcare professionals on how to reduce sodium in the diet. You have dietitians and influencers who have a role to play in how do we maintain culturally diverse diets while reducing sodium. And the same goes for climate change. We all have a role to play. And if we all are moving together in the same direction, we're going to have a significantly bigger impact together. Totally agree with you. And this season is all about enabling individuals to make informed, personally relevant food choices. That's what I want to talk about. So let's tie this to your work. So earlier this season, we heard from the WRI about the Cool Foods Initiative. And I think if I am correct, Panera is one of the first companies to join that Cool Foods Coalition. If you can, can you take me back in time and tell me a little bit more about what was it about that initiative that sparked Panera's interest? Was it really about the responsibility on the provider side? Was it the demand driven? How did it all come together? So as we look back in time, we in fact, we were the first partner for World Resources Institute to do cool food menu labeling. And it actually was born out of this desire for ourselves to say, how do we impact that consumer side of the equation when we're talking about trade-offs? How do we actually influence them and nudge them towards better for you choices and better for the planet choices? When you think about this, there's very little influence that we have to say kind of, how do you eat a lower carbon footprint menu item? There's, there's very little out there today that will do that. And we kept looking at our data and we kept looking at our carbon footprint as a whole. And we have a huge climate roadmap and we say, we need to get people to do all these wonderful things. We need them to reduce their portion size. We need them to eat a plate that has more plants on it. Um, we need them to eat dairy alternatives. There's all these things and levers that we can pull to achieve our climate goal. But the reality is, you know, people are ordering first with what do I crave? What do I desire? And so we say, how do we give them visibility into what the impact of the food choice is and let them make the decision about how they want to eat? And we were talking to World Resources Institute about our carbon footprint. How do we achieve our long-term goals? And they were having a kind of a conversation themselves internally about how do we truly measure the impact of the plate? And then how do we communicate that to a consumer in a way that's not overwhelming? And that won't actually make them feel bad about their choice, but more so nudge them in the right direction to positive choices. And we were really excited when we were able to provide them that data set originally to actually calculate the carbon footprint down to the individual entree level, and then using their research, really figure out how to do a certification together. If I can build upon that a little bit more, 
when do you feel or what was the experience of Panera or you personally of when that information was actually most impactful? Was that at the moment of people actually making the choice at the register? Or was it when people just looking at the menus prior or afterwards and say, now that I know, the next time I might actually change my behavior? Michael, I think that it's a great point to say, what point in the customer journey are you actually influencing and shifting behavior? I would love to say that when the guest walks up to the counter, they're making a different choice for that immediate meal. I'm not seeing evidence of that. And throughout our experience, we didn't see that immediate shift. You know, there's a few customers who are going to do that, but it actually is about that second purchase. And, you know, I think that there's two things that I would hypothesize here and that we've seen through data. You know, one is when I'm going to a restaurant, I've already decided I'm going to, you know, Chipotle because I want a burrito and I want the burrito that I love. So I came in to do that. And now for them, you know, they do uh, how good labeling, which is really interesting as well. After I see that information, that gives me more information to take in and think about what is my next conscious choice um, the next time I come to that establishment. For Panera, we see this actually and tested it through CRM campaigns. So post-purchase, we have a huge loyalty program. And guess who um, had purchased a cool food meal? They got a message. And sometimes it was a message of, we hope you enjoyed your meal. Here's all the great ingredients are that were in it and where they came from. You know, the next cohort got a message that says, hey, did you know that what you ate was a cool food meal? This is really great. This is what you did for the planet today. And then another one was that message about the planet plus a deal, because we always like to see if a deal helps people nudge them a little bit. What we found is the most opened and most motivational was that middle, was just telling them the impact on the planet. They made a good choice. It's kind of giving them that little pat on the back, the confidence boost that they made a good decision. And they more often than not actually came to see us more frequently than they historically had and repurchased that item. And so for us, that's what we're really looking for is more and more of influencing behavior over time. And Michael, I would just click this one level deeper in terms of consumer motivations and Many ways, you know, we we talk and debate, and many academics debate in particular, calorie labeling and how effective was it really when it went to menus. And I can provide absolutely no data point to say that it has changed the amount of calories consumed. Um, but we did this way back in 2010. It became law in 2018, so we have a very long history. I have not seen my average calorie consumption shift down across the menu. But I believe, and this is maybe just me search for myself, we all spend from a nutritional wallet. And we think about our diets in terms of a day, a week, a month. You know, how did I eat during the holidays, the season? And so just like with calories, you know, I might say that I'm ordering a more indulgent lunch. That means I'm going to have a salad for dinner because I've changed my behavior, maybe not in that day part or that occasion, but I do it later. And so for me, I have to think we have to start measuring these uh, across really an extended diet time period to see the full impact. I don't think we're ever going to see that immediate shift in behavior as much as I would love to. Um, I just don't think that that's exactly how our behavior works. Totally concur with you. And I think a couple of additional build outs. 
So obviously there is tension in the system because a provider can reduce the calorie count by, for example, making the items smaller. But that leads to potentially a lower price point, lower revenues, and that would go against the desires of ultimately a profit-driven organization. I think that is one. I think the other one, because I've heard a user argument as well, does more information leads to different decisions. And just like you, I've not found convincing proof that it is. But at the same time, you can make the case from, does it hurt? So by disclosing, do you ultimately negatively influence behavior? Or is it just for the one, the two, the 10 for which it makes a difference? That is still a win. And therefore, I do believe that one, it might actually be just as helpful for the provider. Going back to what you talked about earlier, is that now that you know, there becomes this competitive pressure internally between the chefs and that therefore there might be many, many more indirect consequences than just thinking it's the behavior change with the consumer. I completely agree with you. If the end that you're seeking is that the consumer is is always choosing, you know, the healthiest and best for the planet item, I think you're going to be disappointed. I think to your point, if we have a lot of byproducts and a lot of, you know, different things that happen again, it's very much like a food system when you think about the business ecosystem for calorie labeling to your point. What we haven't seen is that consumers aren't necessarily making different choices. They're still going out and buying a double cheeseburger or a really large bowl of mac and cheese. But the reality is that pressure and because I have that visibility on a menu panel, it's when you reformulate that mac and cheese, you bring the calorie count down because, you know, you get like, oh, that's a thousand calories. I don't want to have that on my menu panel. And so they're just all interlinked. It's a whole system in and of itself within, you know, the cosm of one operation. In that same context, I always think about the question of who do you trust? So trust starts with, is it the certifying organization? And how will a consumer understand what each of these now many, many different certifying organizations actually stand for? And is there truth in what they're saying. So how does an organization like Panera in the past made a decision? I believe that the WRI is the most trustworthy organization through the eyes of consumers, or was it the initiative to start with? But thinking through food beliefs and disclosing information, and now we all have our food beliefs. How do you think about the trust factor in the partner you work with and the certification you want to follow. I completely agree with you that there are so many certifications and it's overwhelming and it's tough to understand the plethora of claims that are in the marketplace. For us, when we were looking, especially on carbon labeling, when it's something very complicated, we knew two things. One, we can calculate the carbon footprint of an entree. We can figure that out ourselves. It's relatively simple math. But what we needed was a subject matter expert that was deeply credible in the space because that was not something we were comfortable going out and talking about on our own. We really wanted science behind us. It's very similar to why companies make a science-based target because we want a methodology 
that has really great science behind it that's always evolving to keep up with the science and gives us that authority and credibility that we wouldn't have if we were making a claim on our own. Um, for us, WRI was the perfect partner for us, just given their reputation. And then when you think through, you know, there's lots of other types of certifications that exist out there in nutrition bodies. Every company uses different ways to substantiate those. Some of that goes to just being very transparent and giving lots of information. You know, for us at Panera, when we went clean and defined this new term, we constantly call back and literally give out a full list of food additives that we eliminate from our food. And so for us, it was really important for us to fully disclose that and constantly push people back to that information. So there's a source of truth for them. You know, for those who make great nutrition claims, they have nutrition advisory boards and professionals and experts in those fields that while they might have a subject matter expert in-house, they're really looking to those third parties to make sure that we're kept honest and that we're trustworthy and um, transparent in ways that are going to really actually bolster all of our credibility. Thank you for sharing all of that. If I go back to my original starting point on how might we enable individuals to make informed, properly relevant food choices. And if you think through that question, Sarah, through like a great restaurant operator like Panera, what are the things that you believe an organization like Panera or any other restaurant organization has that they can bring to bear to help individuals to make informed, personally relevant food choices when they show up in your restaurant? I think that there's three key foundational things that people can do to help people make the choice that is best for them and personalized. You know, one is disclosing nutrition beyond just calories and disclosing full ingredient statements. Unfortunately, this is not the norm still within the industry. I recognize a, you know, a local deli will have a challenge for that, but large national scale operations should be doing this today. So that's base core foundational for us. The second is talk about what are material impacts that you have. So, you know, often we try to boil the ocean and we tell you these leafy greens came from this farm in California and the cows were raised with this and the cheese is dairy free and it gets overwhelming. But it's actually of what are the biggest positive impacts that you as an organization are having? Use those as your claims. Being truthful, transparent, give more information so people can learn more about those, but don't try to boil the ocean. Give those few things. And then last is really think through in terms of, you know, all of those levers that you can pull for your carbon footprint. What is the best solution for you? It might not be the best solution for you to put, you know, the carbon footprint on menu. It might be better for you instead to spend your time, resources, and energy creating a really great plant-forward menu item that people are going to come to your restaurant every week to get. So it's really about understanding your organization and using those levers to really influence consumers to shift towards those better for um, the climate type menu items. Love the clarity of what you just said. Disclosing full ingredients and nutrition. Talk about the material impact versus just the warm and fizzy details, as well as actually thinking through the levers. Love it. In this podcast, 
I think a big part of the audience are change makers. So I'm actually really curious about the following, Sarah. During your time at Panera, the organization launched a variety of really, really cool initiatives. Your organization was one of the first that really came out with a clear and concise policy. From a change-making perspective, can you talk a little bit about from how did an initiative like the Clean Food Policy comes together? Was it the CEO really said, that's what I want to do, I'll create a team and then make it happen? Or is it ultimately you in your role saying, I understand the direction of the organization and here's how I believe as the leader of my area, I can make the difference with the broader organization. So where does change start in a large organization? I think historically knowing the journeys at many different companies, um, whether that's my clients now or Panera, the journey is different for each one. In terms of clean food, it actually started out with a nutrition executive working group. We had a group uh, from our CEO to our head of supply chain to our head of culinary, and we were meeting periodically and we were talking about the things of the moment. We were talking about menu labeling. We were talking about artificial trans fats. We were really talking kind of in the nitty gritty of nutrition because we were a brand that was known for better for you food. And how do we continue to live into that and evolve even further? We had the sense that we needed to do more. And we were trying to figure out what that was. We were exploring a lot of different areas and it was overwhelming to say the least. We had, you know, 20 different directions we could go down. Are we going to go fully organic? Are we going to go, you know, and learn about regenerative agriculture? Are we going to go lean in on plant-based? And we actually took a step back collectively and a small group of us got together and we said, ultimately, what we want to do for our guests is make them feel confident about their choice. I want them to walk out the door feeling better about themselves than when they walked in. And so for me, that really boiled down to this core question of what do I actually feel proud to serve my family and the people I care about most? So it was a really emotional question and maybe a really human question that led us to clean food. Because, you know, at that time, I was a new mom. I had young children and I was thinking about what is it that I want to put on their plate? What's going to help them nourish, thrive and grow? And that's what led us to our clean food commitment. It was really about removing those ingredients that I didn't want to put on my plate. Um, and you certainly wouldn't find in your pantry. So that's where we, we were led. You know, in other commitments, it's probably a lot more scientific and maybe pragmatic. But I don't think that you can ever really lose when you're really trying to meet kind of a higher need than just, you know, fuel and food is fuel. If you're trying to actually nourish and support the food system in a way that does much more and gets to the heart of the matter, I think you're always going to be successful. Love the connections to ultimately heart and mind. It's not just about the science, it's about the emotional connection. And I can truly relate to being a parent, thinking through what would you want to feed your kids? Love that story. In your career so far, you've had many, many successes. And it's wonderful to celebrate those. And it's always interesting to think through from what can you learn from successes and what can you learn from things that turn out to be different than what you originally anticipated. So for the change makers on the calls today, 
are there some lessons you have from things that didn't necessarily work out in the way you originally planned for during your change making journey? You know, I think that one of the biggest learnings that I've had as a sustainability professional has been the necessity for and the downfall when you don't have a clear business plan related to the work that you're doing. It was very clear, for example, during COVID, um, we were not the only ones who were cutting menu items across the board because you're looking at protecting your margin. You have a supply chain disruption. There is so much work going on. And items that are niche items on a menu, for example, tend to be really challenging for both your supply chain, but also operations. And so if you really don't have not only that initial business plan, but that long-term ROI calculated of why does this, for example, menu item still earn a place on the menu? Because it's not going to be the top category seller. It's not going to be, you know, selling off the shelves every day. How do we get that to have a different type of concept of ROI around it? It's really challenging to do that. And I would say, you know, in all of my time, I wish that I had built and it seems silly because it's not fun building them, but I wish I would have built and developed more business plans, not just the passion for, the desire for, and the commitment to doing better, but also building that business case to really make sure that the commitments have longevity and can stay within the business no matter what the disruption. I totally agree with you. And I would unpack that even further. It's not just a business plan. Maybe it depends on how you define a business plan. It is the path to implementation. Because what I've learned as well in my own organization, we've made a variety of really amazing, bold commitments. And it's amazing when you get your senior leadership to embrace those. But then when you become the lucky dookie to say, and now act upon it, that's very, very different. And now you get the question, holy moly, how are you going to do that? And I think it's very similar to what you talked about. You can make the commitment to reduce your carbon footprint. You can make the commitment to offer ultimately cleaner or healthier food. But how do you go from that statement to making sure that the various teams around the world can deliver on that commitment in a consistent operational way? I completely agree. You know, for clean food, we reformulated 152 menu items in two years' time. So it literally took the entire team, everyone across the entire organization galvanized to make that happen. I still look back in shock and awe that we achieved our goal. And then there's other things that we've done throughout the years, and they move much slower and you know progress at levels that we wish would pick up pace and move faster. Um, but to your point, kind of operationalizing and moving things out into the system and embedding them in the business is a very big challenge for everyone. Yeah. Last question, back to change making and aspiring change makers. So we talk about food systems, they're complicated, they're complex, there are many, many issues. Any words of wisdom for aspiring change makers in food of how to think about it or how to get going or where do you see opportunities? Well, I'm inspired by lots of uh, leaders, including you, Michael. But I would say my three key takeaways are one, and it's a repeat from something I said earlier, but don't boil the ocean literally and figuratively. Really think about what your true impacts are and invest your time, treasure, and talent 
with impact as your biggest goal. What is the biggest and best impact that I can have? Put all of your energy there. Um, I think two would be relationships are everything. Any sustainability leader will say that getting both internally and externally a network that can support you, help educate you, that can be engaged, that can help you know build synergies so that the work can move faster um, is critical to success. These types of networks are the ones who are going to accelerate and multiply your efforts. So spend time on the relationships. And then last but not least, don't reach the finish line to talk about your work. More often than not, people wait until they've achieved, they've rolled out, they've hit a milestone. But actually sharing your journey along the way allows you to actually inspire, influence others who might actually help you on the journey along the way. So don't be afraid to share that. Now, you might not put you know, a certification on your menu when you're not there yet, but talking about your journey, for example, towards regenerative agriculture and what you've learned is going to serve all of your peers and help actually accelerate the movement. Love those insights. Better together. With that, Sarah, we're at the end of our time today. Thank you so much for actually spending time with me and sharing your insights. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun talking with Sarah. She has real change-making experience in the arena. She truly gets it. I loved her three takeaways for change-makers, especially her advice not to boil the ocean. It's true that we all have a role to play in systems change. And it's important to consider where we can each make a unique and lasting contribution. In changing a complex system, there are many levers to affect change. That's why it's so important to understand your organization and where you can have material impact. I also appreciated Sarah's story about the up and downstream effects of the Cool Foods initiatives at Panera. What started as a way to increase transparency to the customer, a downstream effect, led to the organization to improve their innovation pipeline, an upstream effect. To me, these ripples in the system underscore the unpredictable nature of change making and the importance of methodically piloting a decision before scaling it. For more information about the examples and topics described in today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. And thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlaptop.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at FoodLabTalk. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. Imagine, believe, and most importantly, act. See you next time.